Welcome to The Chapel Online. At The Chapel, we're about helping people meet, know, and follow Jesus on the campus, in the city, and around the world. Again, good morning. We're so glad you're here. Hey, listen, I'd like to start our time and ask you to imagine in your mind's eye something in your home, specifically your refrigerator. I want you to imagine opening the doors and looking in, and I want you to take note of what's not there. What do you not keep in your freezer or refrigerator, maybe in the cabinet, because you don't want to eat it? If you come to our house and you open either freezer, we have two, and you look for Bluebell homemade ice cream, guess what you're not going to find? Bluebell homemade ice cream. <laughs> because my sweet wife Mary knows that if it's there, I will have no uh, problem eating all of it. If it's not there, it's either because I am eating it currently <laughs> with you, or uh, she has uh, kindly not brought that into the house. I, I just I have no, no, no will against it. I don't know what it is for you. When you think about, I don't want to drink that, I don't want that in my cabinet, I don't want to eat that, I don't want that in my fridge, I don't want to munch on that, I don't want it in the pantry. A great strategy to, to resist the temptation to eat the wrong thing is just to not have it in the house. That's a great strategy. When it comes to uh, other temptations, it can get a little more complicated. What if you're tempted to believe a lie about yourself or someone else? Now it gets a little more complicated. You have to know what the truth is so you know that it is a lie and you can push back against it. Today, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 3. And uh, Genesis chapters 1 and 2, amazing uh, introduction. God introduces himself as the creator who creates with great abundance. Everything he created is good. He creates purpose. He creates meaning. He gives boundaries. He gives companionship. He gives everything that humanity needed, and it's in abundance. That's the first thing. Second thing is we see in chapters uh, 1 and 2, 11 times it says, God said, God said, God said. And when God speaks, things happen. Things that weren't were. Things that were formless are formed. Things that were emptied are filled. When God speaks, things happen. The question is, what happens when someone else speaks? And that's what we're going to face in chapter 3 of Genesis. Someone else speaking and talking. And we're going to see the introduction of temptation. So that's uh, what we'll be looking at today. If you're familiar with Genesis chapter 3, you know this is where Adam and Eve are tempted to do what God has asked them not to do. So as we continue in our morning, I want to pray for you. Preparing, I realized every week um, I know that there are people here that are trying to understand who Jesus is. They're trying to come to grips with the claims of Christ and, and choosing whether or not to believe in him. And I pray that today, as we are in this passage, you might understand more of the tension that Christians face in dealing with temptation and that you yourself might face and know about but are unsure of how to resolve. Additionally, if you are a Christian, I'm praying that today would give you some real strength in facing the temptations that you face. And I want to speak specifically to some of you who may be tempted right now to do something tomorrow. Tomorrow. Temptations are strange things. They come at us and we might indeed begin to think, you know what, 
I've made up my mind. I'm going to make the call on Monday. I'm going to check this out on Monday, maybe later today. I'm praying that today you'll be encouraged to resist that temptation, that you'll step back, you'll step into light, that you might um, bring someone else into that. And then, of course, maybe you're here today and you, you're struggling with the temptation you succumbed to yesterday, this morning, last week, last year, 10 years ago. And the guilt and the shame of that is still weighing on you. I'm praying that today you will leave knowing the forgiveness of God. You'll leave being strengthened to face the temptations. You will leave drawn to the Creator. So would you pray with me to that end? Father God, we give you thanks in Jesus' name that you do not leave us here alone, but that you are present in so many ways through the people of God, through the Word of God, and the Spirit of God. And I pray for those today who are struggling with the temptations they have fallen into and the shame and the guilt that that has produced in them. May they turn to you. May they come to you today and be honest with you. I pray, Lord, for those who are in the throes of temptation, who are really weighing whether or not they should do this or that. And I pray that you would give them strength to be obedient and resist the temptations that they're faced with. As you taught your disciples to pray, we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil and the evil one. I pray that for them. Lord, I pray for those seeking to understand who you are, that they will see you as one that is full of abundance and grace, that seeks relationship, who desires to bring hope where there is none, help where it's needed desperately, restoration where things are broken. And I pray also, as your word encourages us to, for peace in Israel. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, perfect situation. We're in the garden. Everything's great. Adam and Eve are there. And there's an intruder. There's an intrusion. And we are not told a great deal about the intruder, where he's from, the intrusion. We're just not given any facts to speak of. And when it comes to these things, we would love for there to be more, a lot more, a lot more information about who this is and where this has come from. But it's basically a mystery. The text here does not concern itself. Chapter 3 of Genesis doesn't concern itself with that. This is how it introduces the intruder. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. There it is, simple introduction. I don't know what you did yesterday. I managed to slip in a little football and watching, not playing. And while I was watching, I was really, really frustrated to the point to where my wife tapped me on the leg and said, hey, you need to settle down. <laughs> I was frustrated with our tigers. And um, in the back of my head, I thought to myself, did y'all not watch any tape did y'all not watch any film? Did you not watch and learn about your opponent? He's 6'6", 241 pounds. You need a solution for that before you take the field. 
This is me, armchair quarterback who doesn't know a defensive end from a tight end. But I'm still lathered up about it. I'm really angry about it. Right? Of course they've watched hours of film. That's what they do. But when it comes to the spiritual enemy of Christians, we are just too ignorant. We've not watched any film. We don't know anything. And so we're going to have to go outside of Genesis to kind of get a little background on this intruder, who he is and what he is. He symbolizes an anti-God. He is an adversary of God. He is a created being because it said, and he was created. That means it's not a mythological figure. He is created, but he's different. It resembles a snake. The question of whether he is or not is help. We get help from Genesis, excuse me, Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. This is the last book of the Bible. This is what it says The great dragon was hurled down. The ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to earth and his angels with him. This gives us an idea of who. We get some names devil, Satan. One more prominent in the New Testament, one more prominent in the Old Testament. We also are told what? He's an angelic being. And so I just need to talk about angels for a moment. They are created beings like humanity. They're given the choice whether or not to love and serve God like humanity. Uh, but they're very different. They are powerful. And their spirit, not just physical body, but physical, I mean, uh, spiritual Here's the biggest distinction, and this is what may bother the angelic host, if you will. They're not made in the image of God. That's a, that's a particular way that humans are made, in the image of God, to be in relationship with him. So how did this foreign enemy, this intruder, this serpent, end up in the garden? To find that out, we have to go to two Old Testament passages, and it's not stated super directly. The prophets, inspired of God, compare the demise of the devil with the demise of the kings that are opposing Israel. So there's a comparison made. And when you hear the words, you go, these words cannot be applied to a human. They must be applied somewhere else. The first one is in Ezekiel 28. A little background on this adversary. Ezekiel 28, in this passage, Ezekiel is called the Son of Man. Here's what it says. The Son of Man, take up a lament concerning the king of Tyre, the physical king that was opposing Israel, and say to him, this is what the sovereign Lord says to you. You are the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Obviously, the king of Tyre was not, but the devil, the serpent was. Very Every precious stone adorned you. And then there's some verses explaining that. Verse 14, you were anointed as the guardian cherub. For so I adorned you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in all your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. And when did that wickedness appear? When in the king of Tyre, when he turned against Israel. How about the serpent? When did that happen? Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 14, God speaking of the fallen angel, Oh, how you fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to earth, you who once laid low the nations. 
You said in your heart, and you'll see the words, I will, I will, I will, I will. You will see the pride and the hubris which leads to the downfall. I will ascend to the heavens. I will write, I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of the assembly on the most high heights, on the, on the utmost heights of the Mount of Zaphon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. And God said, oh, no, you won't and cast him to earth. And he makes his way to do what he's always doing, which is disrupt the plans and purposes of God. And what better way than corrupt the garden? Jesus even referred to seeing Satan fall in Luke chapter 10, replying to his disciples and their battle with the spiritual forces of this world. He reminded them, uh, he replied in verse 18, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Meaning that Jesus as co-creator knew all about this before it happened. So we just get a snapshot of this enemy. What it is, who it is, some various names. He is an accuser. He is a liar. He has come to steal, kill, and destroy. That's his primary concern. But his primary description is just very subtle. It's very simply stated in chapter, I mean, verse um, one. He is more crafty. So I want to compare that to the last verse of chapter two. Remember, the original Bible didn't have verse notations. They're used as street signs to help us navigate. So this creation account ends with this beautiful statement. Here's what it says. Adam and Eve were both naked and they felt no shame. And then the very next line says, now the serpent was more crafty than all the wild animals, right? They're the two. And I've underlined, well, I didn't, they didn't make the underline. Underline on the screen for me. No, I'm kidding. Naked and crafty. Those are the words. They actually rhyme in Hebrew. So I would paraphrase this, that this way. They were nude. He was shrewd. It kind of works. Here's the point. And it jumps off the page to the Hebrew reader. They were nude and everything was great and there was no shame and everything was perfect, but he was shrewd and he's going to attack what? Their innocence, their perfection, the holiness of the garden. We get, we, we see it right there. So we have four statements in our outline about temptation. And the first one is this. How does this attack come? Shrewdly. Temptation questions the word of God. That's the first thing we said. Remember, in chapters 1 and 2, 11 times it says, and God said, and God said, and God said. Chapter 3, for the very first time, an outsider from the garden speaks. Remember, man spoke when he saw Eve, but now the tempter's there. And this is what the tempter says in the second part of verse 1. He said to the woman, did God really say, did God really say you must not eat from, the, uh, from any tree in the garden? Shrewdly, subtly. It's like he's asking her a theological question. It's just, I'm just asking. I'm just, I'm just wondering. His goal is clear, disobedience. He wants her to be disobedient. He wants to distort the perspective, emphasizing God's prohibition, prohibition not his provision, reducing God's command to a question of doubting his sincerity, defaming his motives, and ultimately denying the truthfulness of what he said. This is what the devil is after. It is an invitation to sit in judgment over what God has said 
And that invitation has been received over and over again by humanity. What's her response? Verses 2 and 3. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat from the, the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Eve has changed the words. They either didn't come to her accurately or she's taken some liberties to change them. Chapter 2, verse 16 and 17 is what God said. I'll put it on the screen so you can follow along. And then God commanded the man. He's talking to Adam. Eve's not yet here. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden. That speaks of abundance and liberty. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die or surely die. So when we consider Eve's statements, she's done a couple things. First of all, she's minimized provision. She's minimized. She didn't say, oh, we're free to eat anything in the fridge. We can just have at it. She just says, oh, yeah, we can eat in the garden. It's a subtle difference. But it, it minimizes the abundance of God, his beauty, the greatness in which he has provided. She plays it down. And man, as we do, we, we lean into the idea that God is a God of scarcity, right? A God of scarcity. Secondly, she added a prohibition. Hey, you can't touch that. No, 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 don't touch that. And there's nothing that feels more righteous than to add rules to rules, Right? Actually, it feels self-righteous, doesn't it? <laughs> I'm going to add rules to rules, and this is how legalism begins. Because the rules I add to rules are the rules that I can keep. And I can look good doing it. And not only can I look good doing it, but I can feel superior along the way. Who, With whom am I superior? Everybody. Because I'm keeping the rules that I added to the rules. Because I'm serious. Right? That's what she does. And when we add, we also, by adding, you subtract. Our standard is not some additional rule. Our standard as Christians is Jesus Christ himself. That's our standard. Not something less than that. The realization that we can't be perfect should drive us to Jesus and his provisions of forgiveness and salvation. Thirdly, she weakens the penalty of the sin. Not that you will surely die, certainly die, absolutely die, but yeah, we die. There's just a, it's a subtle difference. It backs off of it. It's a subtle change. We're not going to make a big deal of this. And, and it lessens what? The consequences of sin. And we see this played out all over the place. It's really not that bad. And we compare ourselves to others as we do this. Hmm. So let me ask you a question. When it comes to God's word, are you an adder or a subtractor? Do you add to things or do you subtract? Do you tend toward, another way to ask the question, do you tend toward legalism, harshness, self-imposed restrictions that then become other-imposed? Or do you tend toward licentiousness? I'm free. I can live over here. Yeah, but you're hurting people. You're confusing people. 
That's okay. I'm free. Which is it? We, just to be clear, we all move one way or the other. Very few of us just stay right on the center. We tend to, to fall one way or the other. What is yours? Are you an adder or are you a subtractor? Full disclosure, I tend to be an adder. I do it very carefully, subtly, but the result is still the same. Self-righteousness. Because you don't even know I've added it. I mean, all kinds of things. And I've added a bunch, and I'm keeping up with it. And you're not, mainly because you don't know. That's, isn't that the way it works? Isn't that the way it works? Secondly, temptation denies God's word. Not only questions it, denies it. You will not surely die, verse 4. The serpent said to the woman, and this lie is alive and well today. The lie is that obedient, disobedience has no consequence, not less consequence, no consequence. Disobedience has no consequence. Some people will, will notice that there's not a social pushback on certain things where there used to be. And if, if this doesn't bother anybody, then what's your hang-up? I'm free to do that. And if there is a social pushback, it only is, really happens if you get caught. So the only consequence is, does it bother somebody? And it shouldn't bother you. Who are you to judge me? And can I live without getting caught? Because if I don't get caught, then there's no consequence. And there's no problem. That's really not how God deals with humanity. I mean, it's not what the population thinks. When I was growing up, the Mississippi Bridge was always a reference point. And it was stated like this. If everybody decides to jump off the Mississippi Bridge, are you going to jump off of it? Everybody's not our standard. Christ is our standard and his word. It's a big difference. So it just straight up lies. And here's the thing you need to understand. To deny the word of God, is to deny God. It is because it deals with his integrity. If he said it, it is true. And if he doesn't act on it, then he's not a God of integrity. So the real appeal is to accuse God's goodness. That's our third one. Temptation accuses God's goodness. Because he's not just asking about the wording. He's actually going to go further. Question is integrity but also his goodness. Look at verse 5, chapter 3, verse 5. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The tempter is saying this, God is holding back. God is holding back. If you've walked with Jesus even around the block, you have had this temptation whispered in your ear. God is holding back. He knows something that you don't know. It never occurs to us that we maybe can't handle the knowledge, and so it's more protection than restriction. But the tempter says, God is holding back. He is not good. What have you believed God is holding out on you? Now, again, 
as I, as I prepared this sermon, I realized I bring this next point up a lot. And what pastors bring up a lot are usually the places where they struggle. So what's the most fertile ground for you for feeling like God is holding back? I think it's the place where most comparisons can be drawn in private. For me, maybe just for me, but I don't think so. Social media is a super fertile ground for comparisons. Always leaving you wondering, what's God holding out on me? And then you just live in this state of confusion, state of, of less than. Number four, temptation lies about what it promises. <laughs> the servant says you're going to be like God. That's a lie, right? We'll grow in awareness. Our mind's eyes will be open. Then we'll be able to perceive what God can. Eh, not really. It's a half-truth. If you ever want to find where a lie likes to reside, it's right next to the truth. Right next to the truth. Might even have one leg on one side and one on the other. A half-truth. Those are the best full lies, a half-truth. And that's what's going on here. It's a half-truth. God has already told us what is good and evil. We don't need to discover it. He's already told us what's good and evil. And to question him about that is to put ourselves in the place because what's good and evil declared by God comes from his character. So if we come up with a different definition, are we not challenging who he is? Here's how one person put it. To know good and evil is to usurp God's authority and decide on the basis of our own judgment what is to be counted as good and what is to be counted as evil. And when we do that, as we saw in, as we started the book of Ruth and we considered the end of Judges where it says everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes, that's everybody deciding what is good and what is evil. It leads to chaos. And when there's chaos... Violence erupts, and when violence erupts, people are abused and used. And when people are abused and used, families falter and fail, communities are crushed, and ultimately humanity fails. Civilizations die when we determine it. A few years ago, a high schooler said this to me, sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you there longer than you want to stay, and cost more than you want to pay. And I thought, you're not old enough to fully understand that, that statement, but I am because I have been lied to in temptations. Oh, so many creative ways to lie that's promising something it cannot deliver. What about you? What temptation are you seeking that you're playing with, that you're concerned with right now? And you really deep down know. What's behind door number one? The same thing that was behind it last time you opened it. Less than you expected. More costly and time-consuming. The same wrong is there. Yeah, but this is different. It's same old, same old. This is a noble lie. A noble lie is when a person or a government or or a group of people, or maybe a union. They say something that's untrue, and they want you to feel like, I'm really for you. And the whole point is to manipulate you to do something that you wouldn't normally do. It's almost like 
this serpent is saying, this tempter is saying to Eve, God's holding out on you. I've got your best in mind. And that is a lie, an absolute lie. He does not have his best in mind, our best in mind. His, his desire is to destroy. Destroy us, destroy our relationship with God, and destroy our community. That's his desire. So how did, how did Eve respond? Look at verse, uh, verse 6, chapter 3, verse 6. When the woman saw the fruit of the... Uh, saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some of it and ate. She took some and ate and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Oh, he appeals to her hunger. He appeals to her beauty. He appeals to her desire for knowledge. It reminds you of the warning in 1 John Chapter 2, verse 16, everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life comes not from the Father, but, but from the world. But from the world, God had made, he already told us, I'm going to make the trees beautiful for you to look at. There's going to be plenty of food, but she's pressing on. She wants wisdom that she shouldn't want because she's certain that God is holding back. See the words? She saw. She ate it. She saw it. She took it. She ate it. And she gave it. And now everything's a mess. And she, and she shared it with her husband. James helps us understand a few things about temptation that I want to go to. James chapter 1, verse 13 says this. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person individually is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. There's the pattern. There's the pattern. When we're tempted, we are, we're going to get dragged away. That's isolation. And when we're all alone, we have no other voices we have no other ways to combat what's being whispered into our ear. And we're going to struggle, isolated. So how do you fight temptation? Here's a great verse. It's one verse after N. James chapter 4, verse 7. Submit yourselves then to God. That's our first step. I'm going to submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. I meet way too many Christians who out of pride, they don't want to be found out. They're, going to, they're not going to run from sin. They're going to fight sin. And they're going to run from the devil. Over and over, we are encouraged when you're faced with an overpowering um, temptation of passion, an overriding desire. Run! Where do you go? Well, you go into the community of faith. And you say, I'm really struggling here. Some of you need to today call a trusted, believing friend and say, I got to tell you what I'm about to do. And I don't want to do it. And I need to run from it. We need the people of God. We need the word of God. And we need the spirit of God. We were not designed in and of ourselves to fight the battle of sin. God's given us his spirit to rely on. God's given us gospel community to be in. Some of you just need to pick up the phone, maybe now. Text them. I don't mind. 
Say, we need to talk today. I am really struggling. And then we need the word of God. What do we need the word of God for? We need to resist the devil. Too many people flee the devil and fight the sin. They get it backwards. We need to flee from sin. and We need to fight the devil. Here's why. Because when you leave with all the lies he's planted in your brain, you, you just run away with them in your head. And then you get isolated and alone and you start replaying them. And you need to go, no, stop. That's not true. <laughs> you need to fight the devil with the truth. You need to come right back at him. Say, no, that's not true. That's what Jesus did when he was tempted in the wilderness. He fought those temptations with the word of God. That's why we're encouraging you to be in it all the time. I need to understand this. No, no, that's not it. I'm going to push back on that. Sometimes I even say it verbally. I'm grateful that now everybody's on a phone and no one knows who you're talking to so you don't look crazy. But I can, go, I can say it verbally. No, you don't have authority here and what you're whispering in my ear is a lie. It's not true. How do I know? Because God's word told me it was true. We need it. Now we need a sidebar here for just a second. And we got to talk about Adam. What the heck happened to this boy? He's there with her, it says. With her. He ate willingly. He did not fulfill his purpose and leadership or protection. He was with her the whole time. The whole time. He needed to step up. He needed to step in. He needed to step on a snake. And he's not there. Remember, Eve was not given the command. He was. He was. I don't know if he miscommunicated it or if he didn't communicate it or if he didn't communicate it with, with the same passion that God had communicated it to him. But what is clear and will become more clear in chapter 3 is that Adam was being passive. It is a natural inclination that plagues men. And until we address our passivity, we will continue to be boys. Look at verse 6 again. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. He didn't step up. He didn't step in. He didn't step on it. He's passive. And what we learn from the rest of the Bible is that he, not she, is held responsible In 1 Corinthians 15, it says this, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. He's held responsible, not her, because he was given the command. Now, I would love to give you a caricature of what it means to be a man, right? Something, something strong and bold, but it would be a caricature because it moves and it changes. You know, I, I grew up watching... Now, I'm not that old, but I grew up watching the reruns of The Rifleman. Oh, man. Guy walking into town with a rifle, firing it at who knows what. And he's firing it, and he's got the vest on and the hat on. And you, by the time the introduction's over, you're like, I want to be that guy. I want the gun. I want the vest. I want the hat. But it would just be a caricature. Like I said, we don't know what he's shooting at. His vest was always too clean. And every story resolved. And he didn't have a wife, which made the story really simple. <laughs> Just a little levity. 
just a little levity before we get down into the weeds of it all. Robert Lewis, in his work called Men's Fraternity, he gave a definition that I have used with my boys and I plan on using with my grandsons. A biblical man rejects passivity, accepts responsibility, leads courageously, and expects God's greater good. I don't need to give you a caricature of what a real man looks like because the Bible gives us one. He's given the moniker, he's given the title of the second Adam. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. He rejected passivity and he stepped into his task. He stepped into his calling. He didn't say, find somebody else. He stepped into it, and it would cost him his life. Genesis 1 and 2 paints this picture. Man has a work to do, a will to obey, and a woman to love and care for. Adam did none of these. He took none of these responsibilities on. The second Adam, Jesus Christ, took them all on. What was his work? He tells us in John's gospel. The work that I've come to do is to do the will of my father. What's the will? Not my will, but yours. And what's the, who's the woman he's to love and care for? His church for whom he died. There's our model. We have to reject passivity. We'll see that that problem becomes greater in the second half of Genesis 3. We need to accept the responsibility that is on us to care and provide. We need to lead courageously. Courageous leadership starts with learning to lead yourself. Men, if you never learn to handle your emotions and your sexual energy, you will not grow into manhood. You will stay a boy. You have to learn how to control your emotional energy and your sexual energy so it doesn't control you. And then you need to lead in the home. And this is not being the bull elephant trumpeting to the herd. This is, what, this is what we're doing. Everybody, you will fall in line. No, it is, it is servant leadership that lays itself down for the family. Not the last to say, let's pray, but the first. Not the last to say, let's go and be among the people of God, under the word of God, but the first. We need to step in, step in and lead courageously. And then to expect God's greater good. What does that mean? It means that following Jesus leads to something better. That being a follower of Jesus will lead to something better than what is on this earth. And so I, I live today with my eyes on the eternal horizon, and it's what's pulling me forward. That these days can be hard. They can be tough. We stumble. We fall. But when we expect God's greater good, we believe the best is yet to come. And then verse 7. Adam and Eve's poor attempt to deal with their nudeness because of the devil's Shrewdness. Look what it says. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves to, together and made coverings for themselves. 
Here's my question for you. How do you recover when you fall into temptation? Do you try to cover up or do you confess up? Do you try to cover up? Because it's usually pretty pathetic. I mean, imagine these two beautiful people with leaves stitched together, hanging on to them. If they were embarrassed because of their nudity, they have to be laughing at their now new clothes. It's a pathetic image. Notice the passage begins in 2.5 with naked and unashamed and ends with naked and ashamed. There's lots of ways to cover up sin so it's not found out. We can cover it up with a lot of religious activity, never getting honest about our sin. We can do a lot of things that make us feel better but really don't ever confess to the Lord, I did wrong. We can do a lot of things and just get busy and hope no one notices it because it's a flurry of activity. Or we can hide sin in sin and just double down and get, get really involved in whatever it is. And I want to leave you with a, with a glimmer of hope. I want to give a, just a little glimmer of hope which is coming in the rest of the chapter. Adam and Eve, we're told, have made coverings for themselves. So they're covering up. And we also find out that they're hiding. And the devil's first temptation is not to believe the word of God. The second temptation follows, which is to hide from God. And if he can get us uninterested in hiding from God, mission accomplished. And what does God do? What does God do? Well, we're going to look at it in detail next week, but I just want you to, to take note today that God steps in and he pursues those that have disobeyed. The first death in the Bible is at the hands of God, and it is of an animal. And he kills an animal to provide a covering, a better covering for Adam and Eve. In other words, the God of Genesis is a God that is a God of abundance, a God of grace, a God of caring, God that pursues, and he pursued them even though they were hiding from him. You might remember Romans chapter 5, verse 8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And something died to cover their sin. Of course, that story and that theme will be played out all the way to Jesus. He will die to cover our sin in our place. This is the God we serve. So if you're here today and you're overwhelmed with the temptation you have succumbed to Monday, last week, last year, 10 years ago, here's what I need you to see. There is a gracious God that wants to meet you, make you whole, cover you, cleanse you. If you'll just come to him and be honest, just come to him and be honest. And for those of you who are just on the brink of a bad, bad decision, let this be the light, the foghorn to say, stop, stop. Find the courage to find someone and talk to them. Somebody you can trust. Somebody that's not going to add more shame or condemnation. But they can hear what you have to say. And if you're here and you're trying to figure out who the God of the Bible is, he's the one who created in abundance. He's the one who gave us freedom of choice. He's the one that helps us restore our bad choices that have bad consequences. He does it as his cost. He is amazing, and so is his grace. 
Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you for this detailed picture that we're all too familiar with in our own life. Being tempted by what is forbidden, forgetting what is in abundance, wondering if you're actually good and have our best in mind. Tempted to believe that you're withholding, that what you call us to is actually more, what you call us to is actually freeing, what you call us to actually restores. Lord, I pray for those who need to confess sin that they would do that today, that they would carve out time to sit before you and pour out their heart. Lord, I pray for those that are still wondering, should they do what they were tempted to do? No. Lord, I pray that the people of God, the Word of God, the Spirit of God would be gracious to them so that they have time to run away, step away from that which is tempting them, or to step in with truth and confront the lie. Lord, I pray for those here today that need to trust you as their Savior. Never have done it. If that's you, I would ask you to pray a simple prayer like this. God, all that I know about me, I entrust it all I know about you. I believe that your son died on the cross for me and rose from the dead to give me life. And so today, I believe in Jesus Christ and I declare with a grateful heart that I'm a Christian. And I thank you for forgiving me, for welcoming me into your family, for restoring what is broken, for forgiving the offense, for redeeming, and for setting me free. I pray that I might walk in the newness of life. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us. To find out more about the chapel, visit thechapelbr.com.